everybody i'm back it's a roma episode on a saturday night uh yeah that was uh bole to harlem it's kind of confusing because i think it's it says bole to harlem but then it's also harlem to bole i don't know duke mushroom presents bole to harlem one it's uh sort of a funky ethiopian new york fusion world music extravaganza of course as always i'll put up a link to where you can learn more about this and buy your own copy um but i see there's an audio cd at amazon for 885 and it's uh songlines magazine called it one of the 75 best world music albums ever one of, you don't hear that often one of the 75 best <laughs> it's in the top 75 that's interesting uh yeah so what's going on in my world uh today's saturday night tomorrow's sunday new york times magazine cover story is about non-monogamous relationships and sex adon is mentioned a couple of times the story came out online uh already and i've been getting lots of interview requests and more media attention, which, uh, yeah, I'm kind of used to it now. It's, it's, it's weird, you know, uh, producers for radio shows, TV shows, all that. They're among the most whorish of people. And I, I mean that, I do mean that in an insulting way. 
not to whores, just to producers. Uh, they're they're uh, of the people I've met in this whole sort of mini fame thing I've got going on. They are the most false. They're so full of compliments and, oh, Dr. Ryan, we're so interested in having you on the show. We want to hear your opinions. It's so important to us, blah, 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 blah. And then the second the show is taped, they disappear. They're gone. They, you're, you're absolutely without value to them. Um, you know, like I've had situations where they've driven me to the studio you know they send a limo and then after the show uh i need to like call a cab to get home you know pay for it myself of course or they'll be like oh yeah there's a there's a you know a train stop down there six blocks away oh thank you um yeah i got a call the other day. Oh, they really, oh, we'd love to have you on this show. It's, you know, syndicated. It's all over the world. It, oh, it'd be so interesting. And, uh, okay. So we set it up <clears throat> and, uh, it's going to be a phone interview. And, uh, so I, I like get out of bed early and I like, okay, take a shower and I'm not going to have breakfast because, you know, I'd be halfway through breakfast when this thing starts. And so I just sort of hang out and drink some coffee and I'm waiting and okay, the time comes and I'm sitting here waiting for the phone to ring and I wait 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 and they never call. And then they, they send me an email after I send them an email saying, hey, what's up? I've been sitting here 20 minutes waiting for this five minute interview. And oh, sorry, we're running out of time. We're, uh, how's next week for you? Fuck you guys. It's incredible that like the, the, the way it shifts, you know. Um, anyway, why am I talking about that? Oh, cause this, this thing's coming out tomorrow. So I expect I'm going to be getting lots of, um, media requests for this week, but I'm trying to work on the book. I really am. I'm trying to focus on the book. And, uh, so I think I'm just going to ignore those media requests unless it's from, you know, Matt Taibbi at the Rolling Stone. I will find time for Matt Taibbi at the Rolling Stone at Rolling Stone, not the Rolling Stone. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was uh, Bule to Harlem. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, let's read an email. This is from uh, from Jay. Jay heard Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan's show recently, which a lot of people have written to me about, suggesting I get Jordan Peterson on the podcast and uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested in talking to the guy, but again, it's it's one of those things I just don't have time to to like reach out and make the arrangements and schedule it. Uh, so I kind of like the podcast um, <clears throat> people who just fall into my lap, so to speak. Um, and I've got some great ones in the can. I've got like 15 podcasts in the can. I feel really bad for everybody who's waiting for their episode to come out and probably thinking I. I don't like them or they weren't interesting enough or something, but they're, they're all great. It's just uh, that, you know, I've got so many and I'm, I'm trying to stick to the one a week schedule. I want to shoot myself in the foot and start doing two a week and then run out. Um, anyway, uh, tomorrow, let's see, tomorrow's Sunday, then Monday, one I just recorded a few days ago with a, a stand-up comic named Eddie Ift is going to hit. Um, I just did that I think Wednesday or Thursday he's great he's really cool so I'm, I bump him up to the front of the line because he's got an event coming up and 
so I told him I'd, I'd, you know, throw this out early so maybe some people could go to his event. Anyway, that's a great one. And uh, Kyle Tierman, a professional surfer, really cool guy, very interesting. I uh, talked to him a little while ago. Then the other night I, I, I met a guy, photographer, uh, wanted to take some pictures of my van. I looked at his, you know, my van's not like super photogenic, so that seemed like a weird offer. But then I looked at his website and he's done very interesting photojournalistic work um, all over the world. So I thought, well, what the hell, I'll meet the guy. Seems like an interesting guy. Turns out he's a super interesting guy. We ended up hanging out all afternoon. Then we came back here and uh, drank some beers and did a a full-on Rogan-length three-hour podcast. Um, The dude, you know, it's one of those conversations. The more you talk, the more you you learn. Um, You know, he was in a special forces unit in the military for seven years he's he was an olympic class rower he's uh, uh he climbed uh, yosemite it's like five day solo climb up the the face of el capitan just like in, incredible shit and he's very like chill and laid back about it um but uh really interesting guy don mira is his name so that's coming up and then, yeah, I won't even go through all the episodes that are coming up. I also, I just bought a camera called a Mivo, which I'm looking forward to uh, figuring out. Jake Johansson has one. He showed me how it works. It's a camera that sort of has an algorithm where it, um, it, it makes it look like you've got a three-camera shoot going on. So it'll do a close-up and then a you know, back, it, it's wide angle, but it sort of chooses. So if two people are talking, it'll cut between the two people and then the full, you know, pan, pan back. So I'm going to mount that on the dash of the van. Uh, so I can either just yammer myself or if uh, there's someone with me, we can do a, you know, conversational thing. Jake's going to come with me in the van for a while. And I imagine other interesting people will be in the van as well. So looking forward to that. I'm, and what I'm thinking is, you know, I was sort of whining the last episode about how the listenership to this podcast has basically doubled in the last six months, but uh, the revenue has not. And in fact, it's sort of gone down. Uh, a lot of you responded to that. Thank you. Uh, the, there have been about 20 or 30 new signups on Patreon. So I really appreciate that response. Although it's sort of in a Pavlovian way, it's training me to uh, to bitch and complain a lot, which I don't want to do. So it's it's a funny kind of situation. But anyway, what I was thinking is, as an um, inducement to people to support the podcast financially, I want to I want to have more bonus material. I mean, I send people signed copies of the book and T-shirts and all that, but you can just buy that stuff as well. So it's kind of not unique to uh, to supporters. So. I'm thinking with this camera, what I'll do is I'll record video versions of of podcasts that will be available only to people who support the podcast through Patreon. And it's not like a big money thing. If you support with a buck a, a, an episode or a buck a month or whatever, that's fine. I mean, you're on the list or you're not. That That doesn't matter how much it is to each according to their need from each according to their ability. So anyway, Jordan Peterson. Uh According to Jay, uh, they talked a lot about the hero archetype, and Jordan said that human male's primary motivator in life is attempting to fulfill a hero persona. 
He basically argues that while women have one primary motivator in their life, which is raising a family, men can delay or choose never to have a family. So Peterson argues that what males must pursue instead is struggle and triumph in their lives, whatever form those pursuits may take. Uh, he also argues that you can't not have meaning in your life. You're either depressed or you live a meaningful life. And uh, Jay says, I'd love to hear what you have to say on this topic. Okay, so of course, I'm, I, I haven't heard this episode, so I'm addressing Jay's sense of what the episode was about. And <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. The, the, I would First of all, I would say I think it's, inaccurate and and dismissive to say that women have one primary motivator in their lives which is raising a family a lot of women choose not to have a family just like a lot of men do and a lot of men find that raising a family is their primary motivator so i find that sort of gender distinction to be uh problematic certainly as far as the heroism thing goes I, I don't really buy into that. I, I think that's a a modern, very individualistic, competitive understanding of meaning and, and uh, human life and human happiness. I don't think that we need to be heroes. I think that, in fact, in a, <clears throat> a lot of societies, the sort of hero motif doesn't really apply. Uh, the good person is the person who chips in and, and contributes to the, um, the good of society. And um, you don't really do that by being extraordinary. You do that by being ordinary. So they call it the tall poppy syndrome, right? If you get too tall, you get cut down. I think a lot of societies work that way, <clears throat> probably including a lot of traditional societies. Um, certainly in terms of ego and um and uh narcissism those things are not uh seen as positive attributes in traditional societies uh so our politics and i've i've discussed this elsewhere but our sense of of political leadership is diametrically opposed to the conception of leadership that's um accepted uh, and, and, and celebrated by most traditional societies. In those societies, as I've said elsewhere, a leader is simply a person who other people respect. They're someone whose opinion is listened to closely because they have a track record of being right and people admire them. So a leader is not someone who says, I want to be a leader. God damn it. You listen to me. I'm the leader. So when the, the explorers, first contact situations, you know, they show up and they say, take us to your leader. They're confused. Well, what do you mean? What leader? Who's our leader? We don't have a leader. We make decisions, you know, based on consensus. And that's the primordial human political organization is simply those people who are most admired and respected. Their voice, their opinions carry more weight but not because they insist they must. The sense of coercive power is quite foreign to traditional societies. 
And by traditional, I'm talking about pre-agricultural, of course, as always. Um, yeah, so I don't really buy that whole hero thing. I don't think it's necessary to be a hero to have meaning in your life. I don't. I mean, we all have struggle in life. There's no way to live a life that doesn't include a certain amount of struggle. But I don't think we need to seek it. I don't think we need to climb mountains. I don't think we need to, you know, be the biggest hunter, the biggest, baddest motherfucker. I, I don't think that's necessarily part of the human condition. I think that that is very much a part of our Western <clears throat> understanding of what manhood is. And it's kind of outdated and silly, if I do say so myself. Um, okay, here's another one from Tomas. Uh, <clears throat> okay, I was made redundant at work last week, and I realized this might be the best chance in a long time to cycle around the world. I didn't really need to save up much money. Neither did I need to plan. Um, it's a couple of years ahead of what I was thinking of, but it was going to be scary as hell anyway. What makes, me what makes me doubt this decision is that I've never been so happy as I am right now. Life is good. Health, friends, food are the best they've ever been. And it's pulling me in op opposite directions. Of course, I want to preserve these conditions. But I also have to rid myself of this comfort and chase my dream. Uh, it'll be two to three years of being hungry, tired, and alone at the age of 27 Surely it's worth dropping everything, right? He's planning to go from the UK to France, to Italy, Tunisia, to South Africa and decide where. So he wants to ride his bike the entire length of Africa. Holy shit. <clears throat> so he's asking for tips. Any tips? Ah, beer. Gotta love beer. Um, what's funny I noticed when I was um, <clears throat> sort of when my life was travel interspersed with get a job and then travel again. Sometimes a job was back in the U.S. And it was always really depressing to come back to the U.S. after I'd been traveling for months or years in some cases. The adaptation back to home was very painful because you can feel yourself sinking into familiarity and then you wonder if you'll ever have the energy or opportunity to, uh, you know, build up the energy to blast out and get out of orbit again, get, get free of the atmosphere. Because it's like a rocket, you know, three quarters of the energy you expend is just getting out, getting out. Once you're out, then little little spurts from your engines will keep you gliding for a long time but getting from the surface of the earth through the atmosphere out into space that's that's where the real uh work is so yeah when you drop down through and you're back on the surface again and all that gravity you're like oh fuck am i stuck is that it so that's depressing but what i was going to say is that i noticed that as my date of departure approached so when i'd like given notice and i'd sold my stuff and i was giving up my apartment and say goodbye to people. As that moment approached, life got better and better. And so it became harder and harder to leave because, you know, I would always meet a woman or, or women I already knew would be like sort of 
more the energy that was coming from them was was better in a way and i think it, it part of it's because there's a romance of like wow this guy's going you know that's kind of cool and and so it made me look better in their eyes but also ones who already knew me and liked me knew they were going to be missing me so they sort of were more focused and you know he's going to be gone soon so there's more more attention or whatever but also you're paying attention, you're noticing things, it's, you know, this little cafe you really like, you're going to miss it, and you're noticing all the things you're going to miss. So it changes your perspective. So in Thomas's case, I don't know to what extent it's a change in perspective, just because you're sort of like, oh, I'm going to be gone soon. And, and so you sort of have a, a more focused attention to the things you're going to, you're going to be missing. But yeah, I mean, my feeling is you're 27, you want to do this? Fucking do it, dude. Do it. What are you waiting for? You know, uh, food, friends, you know, health, hopefully those things, you're going to have those for a while. Uh, there's always going to be food and you're going to have some interesting food on the road. Hopefully your health will be good. Just don't get fucking hit by a car or get malaria or something. And friends, you're going to have more friends. You're going to meet more people on the road and have different kinds of friendships, which will be really fun. So, yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think there's any reason to see those things as a reason, uh, as a sort of justification not to do what it is you want to do. It's time for some music. Let's play Reanimation by Blackalicious. <laughs> Shine, dying in my shrine. Born time, more divine, soaring, flying minds. Borderline, Einstein, horrifying times. Ordered like slaughter fights, fortified type. Shorter strike, pouring like water, my ice. Smoke like a sack of that northern light hype. Swerving off a night, throw ice, cold quarter pipe. Sort of bright light, rappers caught a night, night. Bonafide nice ice, stole a mic tight. Sort of like broader heights, what a sight, yikes. Showing motherfuckers how to hold a mic right. Photo like images, Yoda mic bite. Soldier like stripes, bro, despite your devices. Rota folk, right like older folk in sight. Growing like solar kites, show you right, right. It's the get. Can you get your auto mind to lift? Mac rapper, believe that. Placing up the rhythm with my signature. The get. It's the cheap. Tearing up the drum and bringing heat. Rock shock, thunder is beat. Blazing on your local middle street corner. The cheap. Peace to the rhythm, rock raps in the day. Feast on adrenaline, master the way. Of the verbal hunter going after my prey. They running for the highest mountain, yelling out mayday. B.A.B. the great annihilator of the way. They be all on my sacred scepter, jocking like a Pele. Talk a ball, kick them all, drop them in the base. Say, better than your nigga, Albert yelling. Hey, hey, hey. on apprentices like Brandy did Ray J. Shutting down your business like 1580K Day. If you ain't efficient, you'll be all up in a melee. That will bring the richness of the sun into your great day. Take your AK, put it in a little tray. Lay it underneath the surface of the earth and let it stay away. Out of sight and mind so you can focus on your time and climbing, rhyming. Hey, that be my grind and shine and be my face. Can you get your mind to lift? 
Mac rap verbally pimp. Placing up the rhythm with my signature. The gift, it's the Jeep. Tearing up the drum and bringing heat. Rock shock under his beat. Blasting on your local ghetto street corner. The Jeep. Slick slippery, quick rippery, shift physically, drift with a kick, kicking me, hickory, dickory, MCs are sick of me, zen trickery, get the gist, sent wizardry, split lickety, split it could be lit like this, into me, it is a secret, MCs pretend to be kin to the gift, I'm mentally shitting the wisdom of centuries, went, go on like a centipede, length. rappers want flames, man, I into these shrimps, stew them on the board with some hickory chips, I'm a level higher than the intermediate. Rappers, I don't care about your gender descent. Background, police records, history, rent. Unpaid evictions, charge penalties, sent. Merciless in battle, leaving enemies bent. It's the hip. Can they get your motor by the lift? Uh-huh. Back rap, verbally pimp. Uh-huh. Placing up the rhythm with my signature. The hip. Uh-huh. It's the cheap. Tearing up the drum and bringing heat. Uh-huh. Rock shock under his beat. Uh-huh. Blasting on your local ghetto street corner. The cheap. All right, this is from Dave Stites. He says, uh, Long ago, if I can believe what I hear, there was a generation that experimented with what made them feel good. Drugs, sex, music, and colorful textiles. Yes, Dave, that's true. Such a generation existed. I can remember when I was a kid, there was like a a popular t-shirt was of a bear rubbing his back on a tree and it said if it feels good do it (laughs) and that was like the you know words to live by if it feels good do it man anyway it appears that the current generation of young people to a large extent wants to experiment with what makes them feel terrible Hmm. they seem obsessed with being triggered feeling heightened levels of anxiety seems to be their end game but why Is the suffering of social justice warriors key to their group identity? It doesn't look like any fun. Is there any way you can help me understand what is motivating these people? Yeah, interesting. Interesting insight, Dave. I think you're right, by the way. I mean, not everyone, of course. There are a lot of people who are interested in feeling good. But I do think that there's been, in the United States... There's been a backlash, obviously, a social backlash against the sort of bohemian energy of the 60s and 70s. You can see it in politics. You can see it in the rising um, power of sort of right-wing Christian radicals in the government and, and how that's translated into drug laws, into, uh, you know, abstinence-only so-called sex education into uh, uh, racial relations and into a lot of things. And and so there's been this bifurcation of American culture where part of the culture, uh, you know, the coastal culture particularly, is sort of still into um, mind expansion and uh, yoga and... We, more color and art and you know creativity and it seems like the the rest of the country is more um you know reacting against that stuff now part of it 
Um, I'm tempted to say that AIDS has something to do with it, that AIDS is, you know, sort of the end of the party of the 70s and the sort of free love and the promiscuity. And, you know, there's a lot going on and, and people got hurt in that stuff. And it's true. I, and, you know, people often say to me, you know, those things never worked out. There's there are no non-monogamous relationships never work and, you know, communes never work and this never works and that never works. It's funny, I read an article in the New Yorker recently about intentional communities, you know, going back to the the 19th century, there were a lot of uh, so-called communes or intentional communities. And a lot of them were questioning the, the sort of sexual morality of the day and and um, trying to uh, question sort of the individualistic economics. They pooled their resources and uh, raised children together. It's funny, when you look at these these different attempts, almost always it seems like they don't know it, but what they're trying to do is replicate the hunter-gatherer social world. Anyway, I write about that in Sex at Dawn. I actually cite this particular article. But my point is that the article... The author of the article uh, noted that, okay, there's a failure rate of about 95% uh, within 10 years, I think it was the, I may be wrong on the numbers, but the, the failure rate is quite high. It's true. But it's the same failure rate as startup companies. And nobody says, oh, startup companies never work. <laughs> Why would anyone try to start a company that never works? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the same fucking percentage, same failure rate. So question the premise. It's always people are always trying to, you know, slip something by, uh, you know, in the case of questioning the status quo you're ridiculous if you do that in terms of trying to live your life differently but if you do it in terms of trying to make an app and get some startup capital and become a millionaire then you're just a you know an ambitious young go-getter yeah so as far as what the motivation may be i don't think anyone seeks um pain necessarily unless it feels good to them so I think what we're looking at is a form of masochism and I do see it <clears throat> I do see it around I see that a lot of young people have this look on their face that says um it's a very how can I explain it it's uh it's a look I saw a lot in Portland a lot and I see it on TV ads now. So it's sort of entered mainstream culture. It's a look that's sort of like I'm I'm like a nerdy, uh, very judgmental, cooler than thou, and nothing can make me smile kind of vibe. Like I'm too cool to be happy. I'm too cool to get excited about anything there's a very uh controlled um low energy vibe that i get from a lot of people and it's really fucking sad that people buy this bullshit that cool means not being excited or happy man that's really sad What's it come from? 
I don't know, does it come from the fact that many of them grew up with parents who were on antidepressants, so they just didn't see uh, a wide spectrum of emotional affect coming from their parents, and so they've adopted that as a norm in their own lives, whether or not they're taking antidepressants? I don't know. That's an interesting angle to look at. Another angle to look at is that if you look at what's going on in the world right now, if you really look at what's going on in the world right now, it's incredibly painful. This might be the most painful time to be alive, you know, aside from particular uh, horrible historical moments. You know, if you were American Indian in the 1880s, that sucked. Uh, if you're a Jew in Poland in the 1930s, that sucked. So I'm not talking about particular historical situations. If you're, you know, a Muslim, a, a guy in your 20s in Egypt right now, you're fucked. Uh, so there are definitely historical uh, places and, and moments that are really bad. But but as far as just sort of like even if you're and even if you're privileged and you're educated and you're lucky and you're, you know, you're at the top of the mountain and you've got this incredible view, what you're seeing is a world in its final days. You're seeing the end of an empire. You're seeing, you know, oceans where pretty much all the coral reefs are going to be gone in the next 30 or 40 years, where uh, there's more plastic than fish in the ocean where you know the most predators are going to large cats are going to be gone in your lifetime you're seeing just everything shutting down and that's hard i mean i don't know if there's anything harder than that so maybe what we're seeing is a cultural numbness you know maybe we're seeing a culture that's adapting to the incredible pain of having an open heart um, by convincing young people that it's cool to have a closed heart. And if that sounds outlandish to you, it won't if you study history and culture. That kind of stuff happens all the time. After World War I, for example, it became very common in England for women to... uh, form couples and and live together. Now, some of them, of course, would have been lesbians anyway. And so it just, the culture just sort of turned in a way that worked out for them. But most of them, I would wager, uh, were not born lesbians. They, in other circumstances, would have married men and had families and done all that. But Many of the men, most of the men in their 20s in that generation uh, were killed in World War I. It was just a fucking bloodbath. And so there were no men. What happened? The women basically married one another. Now, that happens all the time in cultures and in in animals as well. Um, Their behavior adapts to the condition. So... Maybe what's happening is that young people coming to consciousness in this world, in this sort of waning of civilization, are looking around and saying, wow, 
this sucks. So I'm not going to look around to feel hurts. So I'm not going to feel. And so what they do feel is anxiety and triggered and angry and offended and bitter. And how could they not? Fuck, man. I remember when I was an adolescent, I was bitter. I was angry. And I think it's because I was recognizing that, fuck, this world I'm born into, this world I'm expected to participate in soon as an adult, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. I'm being lied to constantly. Every fucking commercial is a lie. My teachers are full of shit, most of them. And they don't even know it. There's a lot of bullshit. I was fucking angry in high school. And it wasn't until I got to college and I had some teachers who showed me there's some really beautiful stuff out here. And I discovered hallucinogens and I started traveling and it's like, oh, okay. I found, I found a reason to be alive. I found something that's actually exciting and beautiful and wonderful and not commercialized crap. Um, speaking of which, happy Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> fucking Mother's Day. You know? Yeah. Let's leverage their love for their mothers to make them buy more shit. Yeah, it's a good idea, Dan. You get a raise. Anyway, so that's my take on it. I think maybe the reason bitterness and disappointment and anxiety are the, <clears throat> you know, emotions of the day are because look at this fucking shitstorm we're in. And I haven't even mentioned Donald fucking Trump, you know, because this was happening before Donald Trump. So I think it's a larger a larger uh, a response to a larger issue. So, Lydia, I'm wondering what you think of the idea that robots will one day be able to do all the jobs that humans do now, so we won't need to work anymore. Do you think this is be possible, beneficial, utopian, naive, or whatever? Hmm. Well, robots already do most of the jobs that humans do now. And I do think that in the next 20 years, they'll take over most of them. And when they're self-driving cars, which is coming any minute now, how many truck drivers are going to be out of work? How many taxi drivers? Even the, the Uber guys and the Lyft guys, you know, it's going to be hugely disruptive. That's a big, big chunk of people who drive for a living. Um. Yeah, I, I think most jobs are being automated. And I think, you know, that this ties into my sort of grand unified field theory that we are embedded in superorganisms who have agendas that don't align with our agendas as individual human beings or even as a community of human beings. So I would like to think that what's going to happen is as those robots take over that um, the people in positions of leadership will have the foresight to say, well, we've got to guarantee a minimum basic income so that, you know, we're generating all this money with the robots. We've got enough value. We've got enough wealth that we can share it and people can live interesting, happy lives because uh, now they'll have all this free time. Unfortunately, I don't see much evidence from history to suggest that we'll be wise enough to do that, at least not until there's a massive revolution and blood is flowing in the streets because that's the only time that anything is given 
to the desperate. It's not enough to be desperate. It's not enough to be to have much less than someone else. And it's not even enough that the people who have more aren't happier. That doesn't seem to matter. The accrual of wealth seems to have its own momentum and it continues despite the fact that it's not really doing anyone any good and it's doing a great deal of harm to those who are victims of it. It it just seems to continue. There's this amazing anecdote of um, some Indians from the Amazon. This is in the early 1600s. So very early on, <clears throat> were brought back to uh, to Europe and they uh, were taken around and shown some of the cities in Europe. I think they, they went to Paris and they met the king. And anyway, the philosopher, essayist Montaigne, uh, met them and or he was there maybe when they were speaking with the king and whatever. And he recounts that someone said to them, you know, asked them what was the most amazing thing to them that they'd seen in, in Europe, expecting to them to mention Notre Dame or, you know, some castle or Versailles or who knows. And what they said was, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but what they said was that they were amazed at how some men could be starving and other men could be living in huge castles. And they didn't understand why the men who were starving didn't burn down the houses. They didn't understand why this disparity of wealth was accepted. Because in their world, that would be unacceptable. It's a good question. So I think that the automation of manufacturing and so on could be beneficial and and verging on utopian. But unfortunately, uh, I don't see how we share the wealth unless it's about to be taken from us. Historically, that appears to be the only way. I mean, if you look at even 20th century labor movement in the United States. You look at the, the, the struggle to get a 40-hour work week. You look at, a, at the struggle to ban child labor. People had to die. A lot of people had to die. And the government and the owners of the factories were calling in armed thugs. They were beating people. They were shooting people. That's the phase it needs to go through before anything will change. So, yeah, okay, universal health care, great idea. Obama very cleverly got it in, even in a really imperfect form, really fucked up, because he's betting that in the long run, people will say, you can't take that away. We need to fix that. We need to make it better. You can't take it away. And we'll see. We're about to see what's going to happen. Um, but uh, we're not going to change the world by tweeting people. Shit needs to burn down. I'm not calling for it, NSA or anyone else who's listening to me. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying that's the way it works. That is the way history works. 
Time to play another song before I get myself in trouble. This is La Flaca. It's a very famous song in the Spanish-speaking world by a band named Jarabe de Palo. Um, I actually saw them play in a little bar in Barcelona once. One of the guys in the band is a friend of uh, my buddy Voodoo, who you might remember from the archives. Igual a la flaca, coral negro de La Habana, tremendísima mulata, 100 libras de piel y hueso, 40 kilos de salsa y en la cara dos soles que sin palabras hablan, que sin palabras hablan. La flaca duerme de día, dice que así el hambre engaña. Baja a bailar a la tasca y bailar y bailar y tomar y tomar una cerveza tras otra, pero ella nunca engorda. Pero ella nunca engorda. Por un beso de la flaca daría lo que fuera, por un beso. Solo uno fuera Mujer mis sábanas blancas Como dice la canción Recordando las caricias Que me brindo el primer día Y enloquezco de ganas De dormir a su ladito Porque Dios que está flaca Aunque solo uno fuera 
Beso de la flaca lloraría. For a kiss from the skinny chick, I would do anything. <clears throat> yeah. By the way, I just turned on a camera. I got this little uh, GoPro kind of camera. Uh, I haven't really used it yet. Um, it's a. It's not a GoPro, but it's like a cheap copy of a GoPro. So anyway, uh, I just turned it on. If if this video, I'm looking at it right now. If this video comes out, I'll post it and I'll send the link to people who support the podcast on Patreon. And that'll be my first little bonus content. If it doesn't work, then you won't get an email from me. So don't worry about it. Because um, I can't see the framing because the frame is on there and the, the LCD things on the back. So anyway, uh, this email is relevant to La Flaca. Por un beso de La Flaca, yo haría lo que fuera. This is from a woman who says, I'm not going to use her name because this is sort of revealing, but she says uh, she's female, Australian, has been traveling around for six months uh, through Western countries of South America with the main intention of finding ayahuasca to heal, learn, and grow. Some of what I gained from the brew was a light shining upon an underlying fear of rejection I wasn't fully aware of, as well as a deep-rooted need to feel romantic love. While I'm a very confident, outgoing, and I make connections easily, I find that when it comes to romance, I lose myself. I'm aware it's happening, but it's like a vortex I don't have the strength to pull myself out of. Looking back, I clearly see where and how I got very caught up in this idea of being loved to the point of somewhat losing myself. So many of my thoughts and actions and decisions become about him, focused on creating love when I found someone I connect with enough to direct it towards. It's like I'm consumed by this need for love. So now I'm honestly afraid to allow myself to fall in love. I'm afraid the only way to avoid losing myself is to avoid love entirely. And that idea feels so damn lonely. Yeah. So I think that's not an unusual feeling. And I, I've talked about this before. I think love is something we have that builds up in us. It accumulates in us. And, you know, People talk about what makes humans unique compared to other animals. And I have no doubt that other animals feel love. They feel love for their young, their offspring. Elephants feel, seem to feel love for other elephants. They grieve. Uh, I think the repertoire of emotions in animals is far more complex than we admit, largely because it confuses us to kill and eat something that's capable of love and friendship. So we we uh, pretend they don't feel it, just like we, you know, dehumanize the enemy when we decide to go to war. Uh, but I think love is is something that's uh, that that we have very strong uh, as Homo sapiens, and again, I think that we evolved in these 
tight-knit communities um, of intimacy and love that we had lots of people in our lives that we were loving. And the flow of love kept us alive in many ways because that flow of love bonded us together, you know, with people who protected us and took care of us and fed us when we were sick and carried us when we, you know, when we hurt our foot and we couldn't survive without one another. And so love became very much like a survival mechanism. You know, when Sebastian Junger was asked why the Marines that he was embedded with in Afghanistan, why they fought, he said they fought for love. That they really weren't even thinking about the enemy. They were just thinking about each other. They fought for love. They fought because they loved each other. And that guy's got my back. I'll have his back. I think that's a very deep human experience. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the human equivalent of a dog wanting to be part of the pack. You know, we want to be in the group. And the way to be in the group is to love and be loved, which is why rejection is so painful. Because in the environment in which we evolved, being rejected by your group could mean death. People don't like you and they kick you out of the group. That could be the end of your life. Um, you know, so it doesn't matter that you're in high school and you're, you know, you want to hang out with the cool kids and the cool kids don't want to hang out with you. It's a dumbass situation. Who gives a fuck? You'll be fine. But on a deep primordial level, there's a part of you that thinks that might kill you. And it feels like it's a form of death. And I think love is the same way. I think we have this energy, this flow, this constant like churning of love. And when we're living lives where we it doesn't flow out of us, it has nowhere to go, it builds up. It builds up. And, and like any other emotion that builds up, like, you know, horny people who don't get laid or hungry people who don't get enough food or you know, you don't get enough exercise, you don't get enough movement, you don't get enough sunlight, you don't get the vitamin D. All this imbalance creates pathology. And so what this woman is describing sounds like a love pathology. And yet, por un beso de la flaca yo haría lo que fuera. I would do anything for a kiss from her, Right? And you've heard me say it before, the, you know, all these love songs that are not love songs. They're songs of pathology. Uh, you know, when a man loves a woman, he'll sleep out in the rain if she tells him that's the way it has to be. Fuck that. That's on love. That's pathology. In so much of our emotional lives that are normalized in our society, that are we're told you know, write a song about that. That's romance. That's not romance. It's sickness. But because we live in a sick society, it's taken to be normal and it's celebrated as normal. Jealousy, possessiveness. Those are celebrated. They're seen as normal. They're seen as that's just the way love is. That's just human nature. It's not human nature. It's human nature as shaped and sold by this particular society for its particular interests. Not your interests, not my interests. You know, we do much better without jealousy, but in the interest of society. 
that we have the, that sort of insecurity and and so I've told the story about my dad and the dog and how he, they found the wrong dog, but they didn't know it was the wrong dog and they loved that dog. And like, okay, was that love? Ah, I guess it was, even though it was the wrong dog. You know, there's the Beatles song. Um, you know, I forget the name of the song, but they're singing, uh, I need someone to, I need somebody to love. And in the background, if you listen closely, they sing, can it be anybody? And he says, I just want someone to love. I don't give a fuck who it is. I just want someone to love because it needs to flow. I got all this love backed up. It needs to flow. I think people have children because they've got their love backed up and it needs to flow. And they don't really need to be having children. If they just had people in their lives to love, if they had work where they could love the people they worked with, you know, if they uh, if they had the sort of rich and 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 uh, complex social life that we would like to have, but we're too busy generally to have. We don't get to see our friends more than you know a couple times a year sometimes. Uh, if we had the kind of social lives that we need as animals, we wouldn't have all this backed up love. Now, she says a few things that sort of rang a bell for me she she talks about a need to feel love she talks about a fear of rejection she talks about a need to be loved and she talks about obsessive thoughts and actions about the guy that she becomes close to so these are all different permutations here is this about you is this about you having a need to be accepted and loved Or is it about you having a need to love someone else? Do you even distinguish between those two things? Or do you see them as the same thing? Um, These are all uh, important, important things to consider. Uh, As to advice, I, I would advise psychotherapy. I would advise that you find someone you trust who will give it to you straight and help you work through these things because they probably uh, come from some deep-seated anxieties that you have related to the way you were raised, your family, your parents. Um, And uh, until you really dig down into that and, and figure out what has created these feelings and these needs in addition to the sort of base social stuff that I've been talking about. Um, you're not going to be able to really get a handle on it and and control it. So I think it's important that you find somebody and spend some time really digging into that and, and find out what's causing it. Because and I and I I don't think that the situation that you're in is in any way unusual. I think it's very common, but that makes it no less tragic because when you have that sort of obsessive, clingy, um, fearful approach to love, you it's never going to work. It's just not going to work because the fact is you're like. You know, you're you're like someone who grew up always hungry. 
and now you can't stop thinking about food. And when you have food, you can't stop eating. You're going to hurt yourself. And no matter how much you eat, you're never going to satisfy that hunger that you have. Because the hunger isn't about the food. And your hunger isn't about the love. It's not about this guy or the next guy or the one after that. It's not about what's happening today. It's about what happened a long, long time ago. And you need to get down to that. You need to figure out that structural thing. There's a hole in your bucket. And no matter how much love you can convince people to pour into your bucket. And even, it's not even about you convincing them. I'm sure you're a lovable person. I'm sure people do love you. But that their love is wasted because they pour it into your bucket and your bucket stays empty. So it's not about getting more love poured into that bucket. It's about fixing the bucket. And you can only do that um, by exploring yourself uh, on a very deep level. And, you know, hopefully the, the ayahuasca has helped you. It sounds like it has. It's, it's shown a light on these issues and, and made you think about them and, and want to get down to them and write emails to people about them. <clears throat> but I think that um, really the way to, to, to go forward from here is with some discipline and, and some continuity with someone who isn't a friend of yours, who doesn't know you personally, and who is um, accustomed to, to talking about these sorts of things with people and um, can help you. Good luck. Okay, I haven't read any poetry for a while. <clears throat> I, I saw a poem recently. It's a Robert Frost poem called Birches. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's quite long. But I wanted to read the end of it, uh, which reminded me of something interesting. Life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. So he's talking about death there. He's talking about death, and he's also talking about, well, <clears throat> to me, it's reminiscent of all this talk about going to Mars. This, you know, Elon Musk and these guys talking about how we need to be in, uh, you know, a multi-planetary species. So I'll read it again. <clears throat> Think about it in terms of death. He's talking about leaving the earth and then coming back. He's saying, basically, you know, when I die, I'd like to sort of 
go off for a while and then be in re, be reincarnated. I think he's what he's saying. Uh, life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it. And one eye is weeping from a twigs having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snowy white, ah, sorry, and climb black branches up a snow white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good, both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. I agree. This song's called Common People. See if you recognize this guy's voice. She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I caught her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'll have a rum and Coca-Cola. She said, fine. And in 30 seconds time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Well, what else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. I took her to a supermarket. I don't know why, but I had to start it somewhere. So it started there. I said, pretend you've got no money. She just laughed and said, oh, you're so funny. I said, yeah? Well, I can't see anyone else smiling in here. Are you sure? You want to live like common people? You want to see whatever common people see? You want to sleep with common people? You want to sleep with common people like me? But she didn't understand. She just smiled and held my Pretend you never went to school But still you never get it right When you're lying in bed at night Watching roaches climb the wall If you called your dad he could stop it all here You'll never live like common people You'll never do whatever common people do You'll never fail like common people You'll never watch your life slide out of you and dance and drink and screw because there's nothing, because else, there's nothing to do. else to do Get you through. Laugh along with the common people. Laugh along, even though 
stupid things that you do because you think that poor is cool. Like a dog lying in a corner, they'll bite you and never warn you. Look out. They'll tear your insides out because everybody hates a tourist. Everybody hates a tourist, especially one who thinks it's all such a lie. Yeah, and the chip stains grease will come out in the back. You will never you will understand, understand how it feels to live your life with no meaning or control. And with nowhere left to go, you're amazed that they exist and they burn so bright while you can only Climb the wall. If you called your dad, he could stop it all. Yeah. You'll never live like common people. You'll never do what, You'll never common, do what people common people do. You'll never fail like people. common people. You'll never, You'll never watch your life slide, slide out of you and dance and, dance and, drink, and drink and screw. Because there's, there's nothing, nothing else to, to do. do. prosper motherfuckers yeah william shatner if you ever watch star trek you recognize that voice and um joe jackson pretty rocking pretty interesting uh i don't know william shatner giving someone shit for their privilege i I don't know how that works uh on a conceptual level but yeah interesting tune uh okay here's one i love language in general moreover i don't enjoy destructive language but i find it fascinating it's fascinating to me because it's taboo Uh, whether it's the racist saying there goes the neighborhood or the sexist saying never send a woman to do a man's job it's all meant to tear people down i wonder if you have an expression uh, sorry if you have an opinion about the expression he has commitment issues The fact that it's always a he and not a she is offensive off the top. I'm sure there are women out there with commitment issues. Anyway, I'd love to know if you ever have an opinion about the phrase. Phil. Yes, Phil, I have an opinion about that phrase. It sucks. I agree with you. I don't like that phrase. I've never liked that phrase. Because, uh, as you do, I see it as sort of a passive-aggressive way of saying that um, there's something wrong with the guy. You know, the the Peter Pan complex. The, oh, he just doesn't want to grow up. Yeah. Growing up entails surrender so often in the, in the eyes of those who tell us to grow up. Man up. Get over it. Walk it off. Grow up. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you. Yeah, so uh, commitment issues. Well, there are commitment issues. Some people do have commitment issues. Some people uh, are very afraid of 
loving another person because they're afraid of losing them, because they're afraid of being found out to be a fraud. Uh, we all feel that <clears throat> fraudulence. We all feel that, um, you know, we're, when someone loves us, we all feel that they're being tricked somehow on some level. Um, but that's because, you know, we smell our farts in bed and we, we see how disgusting we can be and, you know, and, uh, coughing up mucus in the shower and trimming our nose hair and whatever the fuck other disgusting things we do. And so when someone looks at us and sees this beautiful, wonderful person, we're like, yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of. And I think the more sort of uh, our sense of identity is tied into physical beauty, possibly the more fraudulent we feel. Uh because those things are undermined by the reality that we see that we know the other person hasn't seen. Um, and also, I think that's affected by how much we're loved as children. Um, you know, getting back to the earlier email. I think that when children are loved unconditionally, then they go through the rest of their lives just sort of expecting to be loved. Like, of course. I'm loved. Like, what's not to love, right? It becomes your normal. Whereas if you're in a family where you're not loved unconditionally, where you constantly have to try to prove yourself, where you're constantly struggling to get that love, or where no matter what you do, you don't get the love, uh, then you go through your life with that hole in your bucket. And it doesn't matter how much people love you. doesn't matter. Because you've got that structural expectation of never being loved. Because on some deep level, you feel unlovable. And these things happen before you have language, before you have memory. So it's never your fault. It's never something you can simply think your way out of, which is why you need someone else uh, to help you someone else to listen to you. It's different sitting in a room talking to yourself than it is sitting in a room talking to a stranger. It's just different. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, I, I have problems with the, uh, the idea that he's got commitment issues. Again, sometimes some people do have commitment issues, but generally I think it's, it's used as a way to, uh, to dismiss and diminish someone who who may have larger issues they may have issues they may be uncomfortable with the shape of that particular relationship or they may feel that they haven't come to a moment in their lives when they're ready to make a commitment that's when you think about it that's a very responsible thing to do to say you know what i can't make a commitment i don't know myself well enough yet i don't feel it and if you're not feeling it then the worst thing you can do is pretend you are. Uh, basically, here's another another email where the answer is the same. This is a guy in New Zealand. He's 19, in love with a woman. They've had a relationship. They broke up, but they're still really close friends. She's bulimic, uh, has been struggling with bulimia since she was 13, and now she's getting into another relationship. And this guy is saying like, 
geez, don't you think like maybe it's a good time to take a break and think about yourself before you jump into another relationship? I agree with you, man. But, you know, she's still under the impression that she can pour more bottle, more water into that bucket and it won't be empty. And uh, she hasn't she hasn't figured out that she's got to fix the bucket yet. So it's the same situation. You know, when things aren't working, we have to stop. And uh, but the problem is that when things aren't working, some people, particularly people who have this sort of anxious approach to life, things aren't working. They just work harder and harder and harder. There's a hole in your in your, in the bottom of your boat. And instead of stopping and you know figuring out where's the hole and plugging it, you're bailing and you're bailing faster and faster and faster. But the boat's still filling up. You're just getting exhausted. And before you run out of energy, you got to stop bailing and dive under and find the hole. And I know that's scary. I know it is because the water keeps coming in and you're not bailing and the boat's starting to sink more. But the fact is you can't keep bailing forever and you got to plug that hole sooner or later. Better to do it sooner. So she's 19. It's early. It's going to be a while till she figures that out probably. But, you know, as a loving friend, maybe you can uh, you can plant a seed. Okay, let's do another song. Another call. Well, maybe one more email. And then I'll play you out with a final song. How's that? Hour 17. (sighs) Yeah. I'm tired of listening to myself. My voice is getting raspy. I finished my beer. Time to move on. Uh, This song is called Toonga. T-O-U-N-G-A. And it's by Isa Bagayogo. African. Yo la de nuevo 
Uh, Bagayogo, yeah, really like his his voice and his style. Um, before I forget, a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, first of all, um, my buddy Steve Herman, who's been on the podcast, he's um, very interesting guy, professor in Hawaii. He did um, set up a forum where people who listen to the podcast who want to meet one another can go on this forum and there will be sub forums for your town or state or city or wherever you are. Um, and uh, so he set it up and we'll see if enough people log on to it. Cause I know a lot of people are intimidated by Reddit there's a community on Reddit of about 2,500 people who get on there and talk about the, the podcast and, and they, you know, share ideas and, and things, but if you don't know about Reddit, Reddit's kind of hard to wrap your head around if you're not super into the internet. Um, so anyway, Steve set this thing up. It's at um, T T S. Oh, T speaking. I see T speaking, like tangentially speaking. I thought it was like T S speaking. <laughs> it's T speaking. Dot board host b o a r d host dot com. So you go there, uh, register, give your name, date of birth. I think that's just so you're over 18, whatever. Uh, and uh, password, and then you, you log in. You can say shit. You can talk to people, of course. Be cool, as always. Be cool. But, um, yeah, it's a way for people from different cities and to be able to connect and get together. And, uh, and also... I'll check in on that, and when I put together the itinerary, which will be very flexible, of course, once I get out on the road in the van, um, you know, I'll check in and, and I'll make announcements if I'm coming to a town, and maybe we can get together and uh, grab some beers and talk, or I can, whatever. There's a, actually a festival, a music festival, Floyd Fest, I think it's called. It's in the Smoky Mountains or the Appalachians or somewhere. Um just heard from a woman there who listens to the podcast. Uh, Stephanie, is that her name? Stephanie, I think. Hey, Stephanie, if that's your name, <laughs> if it wasn't your name, sorry, I'll get it right later. Um, anyway, she um, wrote to invite me to the the festival. And so I think I'm going to go. Uh, there's some people, uh, Spearhead's playing there. Michael Franti, 
and I've been uh, wanting to catch him, maybe get him on the podcast, maybe do a live podcast recording. We'll see. Um, but anyway, I'm going to, I'll let you know once I'm, I'm sure about that, I'll let people know. So if you happen to be there or near there, maybe we can get together. Uh, what else? People have been asking for photos of the van. If you follow me on Instagram, I've been posting some van photos, but I'll put some up on my website, uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com. Uh, I'll, I'll put some, I'll put like a slideshow up with this episode so you can, uh, you can see the van if you want. Uh, and, uh, yeah, let's move on to the next listener email. No, I swear, I'm just scrolling down one after the other here of emails that have been screened and sent on to me by my assistant who uh, just picks them because they're sort of representative of the sorts of things that people are sending. Um, and they all seem to be about relationships. It's, it's uh, interesting. Well... Okay, so here here's a woman, uh, a woman. I won't say her name. Um, I've always been a serial monogamous, yet never married and no children, which I'm totally cool with. I'm definitely not the domestic marrying type. I don't disagree with polyamory, but it seems like way too much work. Uh, I'm just out of yet another dysfunctional relationship. Almost five years of him wanting, needing all my free time and me resisting and feeling obligated. The first six months were great, yet I knew after that that we shouldn't have stuck it out, but he kept convincing me otherwise. I know, bad choice on my part. He's not a bad guy. We were just never really on the same page. Anyway, I suppose my question is, at this point in my life, do you think I'm supposed to be resigned and give up the idea of the one or at least one that really gets me and vice versa? Or do I keep looking? Do I keep the faith that someone out there is just for me? Even though I don't have the typical girly dream of a husband and family, I've always pictured myself being with someone throughout my life. My pattern is that I tend to choose men that are super into me for a few years and me them, or at least I try to be. Then we drift apart and he ends up with someone else. I know it's just me my fear and commitment issues that push them away, but I wonder if it's something innate within me that can be fixed, or do I just have a bad picker? I'm definitely not looking to jump into the next relationship. I know I have some work to do on myself. I'm just looking for a bit of unbiased insight. Okay. Uh, here's the thing. You're picking guys who are smothering you. The first six months are great. And then after that, you know, it's no good. You say he keeps convincing you otherwise, even though you know it's not working. When you use the phrase, he convinces me otherwise, what are you doing there? You're taking your hands off the wheel and you're surrendering control of your life to someone else. You're also setting up a scenario in which you are the desired one. The French have the expression in every relationship, one person offers the kiss and the other person offers the cheek. 
meaning in these relationships someone you know there's the loving one and there's the more loving one and the less loving one there's the lover and the loved um and you're setting up and and by the way i don't agree with that i think there can be an equality of of affection and, and attraction and you know it might wax and wane and change and slosh around over time but in general there can be a a parity where both people want to be in the relationship the same amount and respect and love one another you know roughly the same amount uh but what you're doing is you're setting up relationships where you're unhappy and yet convinced to stick around for a while uh the first six months are great okay the first six months are always great the first six months in your case are also great because you're hooking up with guys who are kind of obsessive i would guess because you are feeling unloved yourself and so you look for the male equivalent of the woman that I read, whose email I read a few, three or four back, who gets totally consumed and obsessive in relationships because that makes you feel really good. Makes you feel, it feeds your narcissistic need to be loved, which we all have. But you're using other people to scratch that itch for you and then... When the itch is scratched, you're like, oh, God, you're annoying. You keep scratching my back. I told you that itch is scratched. Well, you you hooked up with a scratcher. So what do you expect? You hook up with someone who's obsessive. The first six months are great because you feel so loved. You're the center of their life. You're everything. Oh, baby, you're the only one. You're the best. You're the best. Oh, I can't live without you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you get sick of it. And then what? And then it's, oh man, that guy's, he wants me, he needs all my free time. He's constantly after me, you know, oh, and I'm resisting and feeling obligated. Yeah, well, that's because there's this deep imbalance in the structure of your relationship. You're not friends. You're not friends. He needs you. He needs you because he's got issues that have made him the way he is that he hasn't worked through. And what you're doing is you're structuring a relationship to feed off that energy that his anxiety produces. And then you're the sort of reluctant, God, why does this guy want so much of my time? That's you. That's no good. That's no good for you. It's certainly no good for him. So, yeah, I think you have a bad picker. I think you are making bad choices because you are not looking at yourself and what you're getting out of this recurring pattern that you keep setting up in your life. You're not acknowledging that there's something in your own self-conception that leads you to choose men who are going to treat you this way. But you're on the verge of it because there's part of you that's like, fuck, I hate this. This is uncomfortable. Once that six-month 
glow wears off, then you're like, oh, this guy's a pain in the ass. Well, yeah, he's a pain in the ass, but you picked him. And so, you know, I guess I'm a broken record this time, but you picked him. Uh, therapy, baby, therapy. Talk to somebody. And you, you've made the first step. You've reached out to me. You said you want unbiased insight. That's as unbiased as I can be. Might feel a little harsh. I hope not. Um, because as I said, you're not doing anything that we all don't do. Um, and what we are all trying to do is figure out our bullshit and work through it and work through it in a way where we don't keep pulling other people into our dramas, right? Now, we help each other. We, we bang each other up like a 16-year-old with the first car. We have to learn to drive, and we do that in relationships. But, you know, you sound like you've been around the block a few times. Uh, maybe it's time that you stop banging things up. Maybe it's time you stop hurting other people. So I would say stay out of relationships for a while, get some therapy, talk to somebody, look in the mirror. <clears throat> Why are you attracted to those kind of guys? Why can't you be with someone who loves you as a friend, who recognizes you as a good person, not a perfect person? Not a person who's so amazing that I'm going to die if you leave me. But someone who's like, hey, I like you. Let's hang out. Oh, you're busy? Okay. Get back to me when you're not busy. When you find that kind of person and that kind of relationship, then you'll be challenged. Then you'll be challenged not to become like the guys that you're tired of. And that's where you learn. Okay, last one. A uh, little backstory. My girlfriend, 21, of a couple of years, and I broke up recently. I was dumped. She realized sooner than I did that we're far too dependent on each other for our own good. It took me some time to see where she was coming from, but by the time we had our last talk, I truly agreed with her. That's good. That's really good. Because of this, we actually had a very smooth breakup. Good for you, brother. That's... uh. That's an important thing to be able to do at any age, but particularly in your early 20s, that's a really good sign. That's some real emotional maturity there. There was no animosity from either side, and although it hurts a lot right now, I think she ultimately made the best decision for both of us. Fuck, dude. I admire you. That's Those are very mature, insightful words right there. Okay, back to the email. I told her we should cut all communication for a couple months to get over each other. She agreed and said she hopes we can be friends again when we're ready. I'm thrilled by this idea because even if she isn't my girlfriend, I don't want her to exit my life entirely. Entirely, She's one of my best friends. Problem is, this is the only girl I've ever loved and I have no prior experience to build off of. How likely is it we can have a friendship in the future without heartache? How long until that's possible? What is the best way to go back to being friends after the dust settles? Well, I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that it takes half the length of the relationship for you to, like, for your heart to recover. So if you're together for five years, it actually takes about two and a half years before you're sort of really over it. Now, of course, that can be accelerated 
by, you know, other experiences, whether it's falling in love with someone else or having children or going off to war or, you know, things that sort of shift your perspective in life uh, radically. But I think more or less, it's probably something like that. Uh, you know, and then, I don't know, you, you get into a 20-year relationship, you'll never get over that. And that's that's 20 years of your life. You, you never get over it. And so, and that's why I say I admire you and I respect the way that you're dealing with this because um, it's a very hard thing to do to acknowledge that a relationship has come to to its conclusion in the form that it's in and to uh especially when you're the one who got dumped when the other person figures that out first and for you to be able to have the self-respect and an insight to say god damn it she's right good on you buddy um you're gonna be fine now as far as the best way to do this and whether it's possible fuck yeah it's possible uh in my experience what happens is women that i have loved i will always love um but i come to love them as sisters i come to love them in a non-sexual non you and me baby kind of way um which is in some ways uh, deeper in some ways sort of <clears throat> I don't know, it's an acknowledgement of permanence that seems very difficult when you're in a romantic relationship. You kind of hope it's permanent or you might, you know, promise it's permanent, but you don't really know. Uh, unless you know that you're the kind of person and she's the kind of person who won't ever stop loving, but you'll let love take the form it needs to take. So that's what you need to do. And, uh, and I think you're right. She's one of your best friends. You don't want to lose her. I don't understand people who, no, we're going to make a clean break. What are you talking about? There's no clean break. You love someone. There's no clean break. Uh, and, and there shouldn't be. You can't just cut someone out of your life like a tumor. That's not the way life works. And you don't, and why do people feel this need to burn down every apartment they've ever lived in? relationship yeah it's a metaphor you know leave leave and leave your leave some stuff behind let someone else use your stuff you know you don't need to take your sofa leave your sofa let the next guy sit in your sofa the next guy's probably going to be a good guy she's a good woman there's no reason to think the next guy's going to be an asshole next guy's going to be a good guy probably because she's smart she picked you she loves you so she's a cool person so <clears throat> yeah, I think you're smart to take some time off. I think you're smart to see other people. Uh, you know, give yourself some time in the forest. Go in nature. There's a beautiful song I played a few episodes back. Uh, I forget the name of the woman. It's, she's in Alaska and she's walking over glacial plains. And she says, I walked off you. I walked off an old me. Go out and walk. Being in nature heals the heart. Um, yeah, so how long? You know, it'll be a while. Months, half the time that you were together, maybe. Uh, you were together a couple years, so, you know, a year, maybe less. And you can certainly be in touch, but it'll still hurt. Of course, it's going to hurt. But acknowledge the hurt. Cry together. 
I remember my ex and I were splitting up and one day we were hanging out and we're, you know, keeping a stone face and uh, we're just friends and we want to hang out and be friends. And a particular song came on uh, and we just looked at each other and started crying. It happens. It's an acknowledgement. It's not saying I want it back. It's acknowledging that it was beautiful and I miss it and she misses it. So what are you going to do? It's funny. I was driving today. Now I've got the van. Sometimes I drive the van and sometimes I drive my normal car. And uh, I had one of these experiences that reminded me how full of shit I am. Because I was driving the van the other day and there are these up here where I live. There are the very curvy roads, mountain roads, and the van's big. And so I don't go fast in the van. I'm sort of, you know, not puttering along, but I'm, you know, going uh, a prudent speed. And people will get behind me and I can see they're like, oh, fuck, you know, they're stuck behind it. And when there's a turnoff, I'll turn off and let people go by. But if there's no turnoff, like, well, sorry, dude, you know, that's just the way it is. I'm going close to the speed limit. I'm not, you know, like I say, I'm not puttering along, but it's L.A. People are in a hurry. And I'm driving the van and I see, you know, a couple people behind me and I think, hey, just chill out, dude. Life's, you know, life's beautiful. Look at the mountains, you know, whatever. And, uh. And then today I was driving the car and I got and there was behind this guy and I was like, God damn it. So fucking slow. And it's like I can be either one of those. I can be the chilled out guy in the truck. I can be the uptight guy in the car. It just depends on the context. You know, we convince ourselves we're we're one thing, but then you change the context and we see that we're we're many things, many, many things. All right, so I'm going to play another song and I'm out of here. Uh, This is Manu Chao, who is a fucking genius in my book. And the song is called Infinita Tristeza, which means infinite sadness. It's a song about love and the cost of love, which seems to have been the theme of the evening. Thank you for listening to these things. Thank you for telling your friends. Thank you for supporting the podcast in any way that you do, even if it's just by listening and telling your friends. That's more than enough. Thank you uh, for giving me uh, meaning. This gives me a lot of meaning that you people listen to this and give a shit all over the world. I don't understand it. It's a miracle, a mystery, but uh, I appreciate it and I'm very grateful. All right. Infinita Tristeza by Manu Chao. Chers amis lointains ou très proches, habitants de tous les pays et de tous les continents, dans quelques minutes, un puissant vaisseau cosmique m'emportera loin dans l'espace. J'ai peine à décrire ce que j'éprouve, mais il me semble que j'ai vécu toute ma vie dans l'attente de ce moment-là. sentiment d'engager un combat sans précédent avec la nature. Le moral est bon, je poursuis le vol. Tout va bien, l'engin fonctionne normalement.
señor presidente? Puedo tener hijos. Ahora no, porque tienes siete años. Pero los tendrás cuando seas mayor y te cases. ¿Quién tiene antes el niño, la madre o el padre? El padre pone la semilla, como te he dicho. Y la madre pone la tierra en que esa semilla hará nacer la flor. ¿Y quién es la flor? Tú. ¿Por qué no crecen los niños dentro de los papás? Yo ya estoy deseando tener niños. ¿Y tú, Quique? Ah, oh, yo no. ¿Y tú, Quique? ¿Y tú, Quique? Yo siempre estaré a tu lado. Yo siempre estaré a tu lado. ¿Y tú, Quique? Solo quieres Yo siempre estaré a tu lado. Oye, mamá, ¿puedo tener niños ya? Número 757. El médico del pueblo. El médico del pueblo. Artritis, asma, diabetes e impotencia. Hoy tenemos la oportunidad de dirigirnos a todos los niños. Es un momento muy importante, definitivo. Revelaros el secreto más grande de la humanidad. La verdad sobre el nacimiento de los niños. Mitad y mitad es suficiente. Radio Mano, Papachango. Nos hemos decidido a revelaros este misterio porque no consideramos justo el que vosotros, grandes y verdaderos amigos de lo auténtico, os sintáis engañados, no ya por vuestros padres, naturalmente, sino por otras opiniones ignorantes, ignorantes. ¿Y qué tienen que hacer el padre y la madre para tener niños? Solo quererse mucho. Yo siempre estaré a tu lado. Yo siempre estaré a tu lado. ¿Y tú, Quique? Yo siempre ¿Cómo estaré a tu lado. vivimos dentro de ti? Pues como la luz vive en su lámpara o el agua dentro del vaso. Es como si quisieras ver el interior de mi corazón. Yo siempre estaré a tu lado. Es la señal. Los tiranos vienen hacia acá. Y estamos listos para ello. Tendremos que hacer algo. Próxima estación. Esperanza. Avenida de la Paz. 